we pray this morning that as we open your word together, you would meet with us and speak clearly to us as we delight in your presence. Lord, hold us fast now, even in your word, as we read and speak and hear what you have to say. We love you. Amen. Well, turning your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 10, and today's going to be part 1 of that examination. So as we go here, we're going to see verses 1 through 10. Um, and we're going to look today specifically at the Thessalonians themselves and kind of how they, who they are, what they are. And uh, we'll read first and then we'll dive right in. So let's go reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church at Thessalonica in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, And with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. May God add his blessing to the reading and the hearing of his word. You can tell a lot about a person by their work, by the kind of work they do, by what motivates them, by how they work. You can tell a lot about a person by how they labor, what When a task is set before them, how they accomplish it, their discipline, their effort, you can tell a great deal about a person, what motivates them and who they are. You can tell a good deal about them, what gives them drive. And in this passage, we can see a great deal about the Thessalonians. And more than that, we can see a great deal about what it means to be a Christian. Because like in every letter, the Thessalonians the recipients of the letter, are also dual recipients with us because God saw fit to preserve this word so that we would read it now. And indeed, as we have read uh, previously in the last two weeks, we've, we've read about this group of people, this Thessalonians. Uh, five months ago or six months ago, I would have told you that I don't know why God was pointing us to this book because none of us were getting our doors kicked in 
American Christians. And yet, in the last month, all that has changed. And we have brothers and sisters in our own nation that are, that are literally being taken from their homes and, draw, and drugged before courts for saying things. We have, we have companies that are threatening to fine and exact guarantees from Christians for standing up for their values. We have, this is happening. And so how providential it is that we would read about this group of believers here in Thessalonica and Macedonia, and we would be able to look at them and go, huh, that sounds like what's going on in our own country. Right? So, you know a lot about a person by what they do. Well, what is it that they do in this passage? Let's look together. We give thanks, God, always for all of you. And by the way, we're going to cover the whole thing, but we're going to do it a little differently than normal. Normally, we would go verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5. We're going to look at this chapter as a whole and just kind of pick things. And then we're going to go back next week and we're going to do the same thing again. And we will cover the whole thing. But just so if I, if I skip over something or if you're like, he didn't mention that, just... Tell me at lunch. Don't worry. We'll get to it. It'll be great. Uh, and I may make you preach it. So chapter 1, verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So first we've got this mentioning he's, he's remembering them constantly in their prayers. Now, we pray a great deal for other churches here. We pray a great deal for other people. We pray for each other. And we do that because we know the power of prayer. We know it sounds absurd and it sounds ridiculous to the world. And we know that often people will dismiss prayer. But here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, we have seen the power of prayer in such great and incredible measure that, that we know better. So we, we pray with fervor for each other. We remind each other constantly in prayer. We remember each other constantly in prayer. A big part of what I do as a pastor here is literally lay my face before the Lord and pray on your behalf. It's something that we do here, and it's, it's not something that is common in the American church. And that's tragic. Because every time we read a letter from Paul, have you ever noticed? Almost every time, almost every single letter, at some point in the letter, he says, we remember you constantly in our prayers. We pray for you constantly. We, we lift you up in prayer constantly. This is a beautiful thing about ministry and life and life together as Christians that we have, that we can pray to an almighty God who actually answers our prayers. And yes, you will not get the credit for that. You will not. I just want to warn you, when you fervently pray for people, you will not get the credit for it. You don't get, people don't call you and go, hey, are, are you praying for me right now? Because everything just got really good. No, they call you and go, dude, everything just got really good. And you go, ha, I was praying for you. And then they go, oh, thank you. 
but you won't. Nobody's going to give you an A+. In fact, sometimes things are going to go really well for people and really, really good for people, and they're going to be mad at you because they don't think that you're involved. They don't think you've done anything. Now you can snap back at them and go, I've been praying for you so much. That's not the right heart, is it? No. You're going to look at them like Paul does here and go, we remember you constantly in our prayers. Remember you constantly in our prayers. We, we're constantly lifting you up. And so as he's praying for them, look at what he prays for them. Remembering before our God and Father, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing he mentions here is their work of faith. We trouble, we're often troubled by putting work and faith together. But I, that's why we read James chapter 2 at the beginning of the service. Just to dispel all of that. This is not, work does not bring salvation. That's not what he's saying here at all. In fact, what he's, what he's indicating here theologically is that faith brings work. If you have faith, you're going to work. It's going to work out. Philippians, work out your faith in fear and trembling. You're going to work if you really believe. You can tell a lot about a person by how they work. You can tell a lot about a person by how they work. If they have faith, they're going to labor. They're going to work. They're going to study the Word of God. They're going to pursue the Gospel. They're going to pursue holiness. That's why it's so disgusting when people go one of two directions. And they either say that they have faith, therefore they don't ever have to do anything. Because they don't have faith if they're not going to do anything. And they're theologically not wrong. Theologically, they're not wrong. They don't have to do anything. No, they don't have to. They get to, and they are compelled by the Holy Spirit to do it. But when they look at you and they go, well, I don't, I don't have to be holy. You want to grab them and shake them. And go, don't you understand that this is the joy of life? The pursuit of holiness and godliness? The pursuit of knowing Jesus? Don't you understand this is the, this is the joy of life itself? And yet... They say, I don't have to do, I don't have to be holy, I don't have to do. No, the work of faith is what he remembers here. And it's because faith works itself out. Faith shows itself. It's what we read in James chapter 2 at the beginning of the service. That faith without works is dead. It's not faith. You show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by what I do. We are faithful and we labor and work. This is a faith that exhibits a life change. Their labors are combined with faith. Faith is the motive for their lifestyle change. Faith is the motive for their lifestyle change. And this was drastic for the Thessalonians. They went from, look at verse verse 9 there. They went from idolatry to serving God. Like just... In that time period, in that location, idolatry means they went from sacrificing chickens to fertility gods to worshiping God. They went from uh, wicked prostitution and temples to worshiping God, the Father, in their homes. 
they went from these little these little idols that are placed around their houses. You've, have you seen these things? They still exist today. They still people still do this pagan nonsense today, where they put little idols around their house, and they they have these idols that they worship all over their house. An, an idol for cooking, and an idol for cleaning, and an idol for for household goods, and an idol for protection and they bury them in their front yards as an idol for real estate right they they do these things and it's absurd and it's obscene and it's wickedness and it's sometimes subtle these people radically changed from idolatry like that to worshiping jesus christ savior and lord there was a shift so he thanks them for their he thanks god for their work of faith Notice where his thanks is, is due. It's, it's to God, thanking God for their work of faith. Because that's, what, that's what's happened here. Faith has come into their heart because God has done something. Because God has done something. You can tell a lot about a person by their work. The second labor that they have here is their labor of love. So they've got labor of faith and labor of love. And of course the word is agape. And there's a slew of cross-references that you could grab for labor of love, agape love, and um, just a couple, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, Revelation 2, 2, and, and then 14, verse 13, talk about the work of agape, um, not to mention the ones that are in First and Second Thessalonians, there are at least four in there, but they loved the church abroad. So let's, let's talk about what kind of love they had. They had love for all the saints. So great was their love that in 2 Corinthians uh, verse, chapter 8, verses 1 through 5, Paul commends them for giving out of their poverty. They heard about the trials of saints in other countries, in far-off places, people they never met. They can't Facebook them. They don't know anything about them. They heard Paul talk about them, and they went, we want to help and they insisted on giving Paul refreshment for those saints. Sending money, food, and things along to those saints in distant countries. And here's the interesting thing about that. It wasn't out of their wealth or their strength, but it was at great cost to themselves. According to 2 Corinthians 8, it was at great cost to themselves. And they gave out of their poverty to these other churches where they would never see a dime in return. There's no return on investment from these people. They sent something off that they might hear about in the future. They might. They invested in eternity, in eternal rewards that they would never receive accolade for on this earth. You understand the Macedonian believers probably didn't read the second, the second letter to the Corinthians. They probably didn't know that they were mentioned in it. But somehow they felt like these believers that were far away that needed help, they wanted to help immediately. Their hearts burst and they were like, take it, take Paul, take this. And Paul's going, you don't have enough money to eat. And they're going, take it anyway. Take it anyway. They gave out of their poverty. Their love translated into self-sacrificial giving. It takes work to love like this. 
labor of love. It takes work to love like this. If you want to be loving the way Christ is loving to us, if you want to exemplify a labor of love, it takes effort. It takes work. It costs you something. It costs you something. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer was getting at in his great book, The Cost of Discipleship. If it costs me nothing, it is not right. It is not full. It is not true. But loving people the way Christ does costs us everything and gives us everything. It costs us everything. Discipleship will cost you everything. But it is worth it to love like this and to know this kind of love and to be this kind of love. So they they had a work of faith and they had a work of love and then they had a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Steadfastness is used in Romans 5 verse 4. This word, steadfastness, only used two other places in Scripture in the New Testament. Romans 5 verse 4 and James 1 verse 4. And it's intrinsically linked to trial. Not people. This particular word is intrinsically linked to trials, not people. Steadfastness through difficult circumstances and trials, not long-suffering with people. That's mentioned elsewhere. That's mentioned elsewhere. But this in particular, the Thessalonians are being commended for their steadfastness in the face of constant trials. Remember when they, were, uh, when, when they came about, right? There were Jews who formed a mob and dr- drugged Jason out of his house before the government and said he is causing an uproar and he's flipping the world upside down and so he needs to be gone. Paul and Silas and Timothy all need to be kicked out of the city and they were furious at Jason who just gets drugged out of his house probably beaten, but we don't, it doesn't say, but he gets drugged out of his house and then they make him pay a tax. They enact, they exact money from him because he's being a Christian. They make him pay a guarantee, right? They, they make him pay a security. This is steadfastness amidst trial. It's not people, it's trial. And I love that phrase, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it goes so far beyond interpersonal relationships, right? Your, your interpersonal relationships can be in shambles. But the reality is that we have a steadfastness and a hope no matter what the circumstances are around us. No matter what the world throws at us. We have a steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope is the answer to trial. Hope is the answer to trial. Not conclusion. Conclusion is not the answer to trial. Hope is the answer. Not ending. Hope is the answer to trial. And what is the hope that we have? It's a couple things. One, that this this trial is not for nothing. Life for a Christian is never meaningless. Death for a Christian is never meaningless. Trial for a Christian, never meaningless. There's always purpose for us. Oh, for non-Christians, yeah, purposeless. They have no aim, there's no hope. They have no end, there's no 
hope. They have no, this, they have no, no eternity to look forward to. There is no hope. But for us, even death is hope. Even, even in everything falling down around us is hope. Hope that Jesus Christ will restore the earth. One, that everything will be restored and recreated and resurrected. That's what we see in the book of Revelation. This beautiful story of the earth being torn asunder. And then at the end, what happens? New heaven and new earth are recreated and resurrected from nothing and death. We have a hope of resurrection. We have a hope not only of resurrection in the future, but we have a hope of resurrected life now. Life that is set above the storms. Peace that doesn't make sense. Peace that doesn't make sense. The peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is, this is the peace that overcomes everything. We have a hope also that our persecutions and struggles and trials and difficulties will amount to something. Steadfastness amounts to something great. Proven character gets built out of trial. Rejoice in trials is what the word says. Rejoice in our trials. Hope does not put to shame. Not only does hope desire good, but it expects it. This is not just simply hope here. But this is hope that expects good coming, future good, present life. Hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at that just for a moment. He says, your steadfast hope, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the full title of Jesus. This is a title that tells us something about the nature and character of our Savior. Look at it with me. It says, Lord, first, Master, King, Lord, our Lord. He is the ruler, the Master. He's our Master. He's the one whom we get our marching orders from. We don't get our marching orders from the government. We don't get our marching orders from leaders. We don't get our marching orders from, uh, from people. We get our marching orders from Jesus Christ. You have a direct line to Him. Indeed, you have an entire book that records his marching orders. You have a whole host of methods to understand and read this book, to grasp it. You have a, you have a vast network of Christians who are also striving to follow, who you can march alongside. We get our directions from Jesus. We get our directions from him. He is our Lord, our Master. Second, He is Jesus. He's not some ethereal, distant God. Unlike every other God in the world, every other God that is proclaimed, He is not distant. He is here. We know His name. We know His name, and one day we will see His face. His disciples touched His body. They touched His scars. They felt His hands. They saw his face. He breathed with them. He walked with them. He literally at one point breathes on them. It's a little weird in John 21, but he he does it. He breathes on them. They they eat with him. They fellowship with him. He's a real person who is not dead, but has ascended to heaven and glory and is going to come back a real person. 
He walks with you and He knows you. He understands what it means when your feet hurt after walking a long distance. He knows what it means to be tired. He knows what it's like when you're hungry. And He knows what it's like when you're thirsty. He knows these things because He's a person. He's a man. And He came as a man. And He lives now as a man. Eternally subjecting Himself to a body. Now, just a side note. I want you to think about the beauty of this truth. That God Himself, God the Son, God the Son, subjects Himself to human form and then stays that way. He stays human. It's beautiful enough. The incarnation itself, the, the idea that Jesus Christ came down in the form of a baby, you know, becomes a baby, becomes a man, grows into manhood, walks life for 30 plus years, and then dies on a cross, physically taking the shape of humanity, putting on human skin, and being a man. The idea that that, is, that, that happened back at the beginning that that happened, that's, that's enough. Like That's beautiful enough. But then consider the next fact that he doesn't abandon that body. That he resurrects that body. That he resurrects his body and decides, I'm going to keep my identity with you. I'm going to keep being just like you. I'm, I'm going to be skin and bone and flesh and blood just like you forever. He unites himself with humanity forever. It's not temporary. He is Jesus. He is Lord. He is Jesus. And he is Christ. The atoning sacrifice. He is our Messiah, the chosen one who would deliver us from sin and death to redeem. He is the prophesied one from the beginning, Genesis 3.15, who would crush the head of the snake. Even before that, he is the greater light that rules the day in whom the lesser lights reflect the night. He is the greatest. He is the existence. He is the one by whom all of reality comes into existence and no longer is there deep, but there is water and we can see and things are defined. He is the new Moses who would bring the law and write it in our hearts. He is the king who would sit on the throne forever. He is the Lord of lords, the king of kings, the, the one that was prophesied to David who will sit on the throne forever. He is the prophet who speaks the word into existence, who lives flaming in our heart, setting our hearts on fire that Jeremiah says, I try to hold in the word of God, but it burns within me and it has to come out. He is that king, prophet, and priest for us. He is the Christ. The one whom we have all waited for. That longing of new life that every human being longs to celebrate and be a part of. He is that Lord. He is that Jesus. He is that Christ. And their hope 
and our hope is in him. Is in him. So what else do they do here in this passage? Jump down to verse 8. Look at verse 8. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Wouldn't it be great if you showed up in, oh, I don't know, Nebraska. Let's say middle of nowhere, Nebraska. You showed up in a cornfield in Nebraska and you walked into a church and you said, oh, I'm from Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Brazoria. And they went, we've heard of you. We've heard of your faith. That's awesome. That's what's going on. Paul is going places and he's going, um, you know, the Thessalonians sent this, sent this to you. They sent this and they're going, oh, we've heard of them. Jason, we heard about Jason, man. Whoo, that guy got pulled out of his, did he really get pulled out of his house? Man, what a loving people. And did you hear about what they did over here and how they, did you, their faith has gone out all over the world before viral internet before YouTubes before those things I still remember when we didn't have cell phones like I still remember that I remember when you heard about somebody across the country you had to hear about it from somebody who had been across the country I still remember that this is before all these things that we have This is before all these things. Now, if you want to hear about mission work, you just turn on your internet and you go to the missionary's page and he's got a video of himself standing there in front of his mission work going, look at what we're doing. My dad used to have rolls of slides. You know what those, the, and they, like this. And he would take these pictures. You had to turn off all the lights in the room because the projectors were about as strong as ours is, Right? And, he just, and it was a slide Rolodex. And he would give these lectures. And he would, he would come from church to church. He was a medical missionary. He'd come from church to church. And he would start talking. And, of course, he'd show, because he's a medical missionary, all the pictures were gross. And so he'd show the surgical pictures and the worms and the bugs and the various things. Like, he'd show all these gross pictures. He thought they were cool. He'd be like, well, this is a removal of a hookworm. And everybody would be like, oh. And he'd, you know, he'd talk about sharing the gospel in the field in Nigeria. And he'd, you know, all these various things. He had these crazy stories. And then he'd show these pictures of people standing like, you know, and that's, that was it. That's what you had. This is what's going on in Macedonia with the Thessalonians, except that they don't even have pictures. They don't even have slideshows. They don't just, they're getting, like people have heard of them. Oh, we heard of you. I know you. Man, it's good to see you. That's what's going on. Wouldn't it be incredible if this is what describes you? You can tell a lot about people by how they work. These people are trumpets in the kingdom of God. And how are they trumpets? Simply by living. They're not doing any major like massive political change. They're not, they're not changing the way things are done. They're simply living. Living as Christians. They're loving their neighbor. And that's it. They're giving to the saints where there's needs. They're, 
They're taking care of each other. They're simply living like Jesus. And that is turning the world upside down. And get this. They're small. They're not wealthy. They're not popular. They're small. We know from other places that the Thessalonians, they're not... They don't have a famous preacher that comes out of Thessalonica. They don't. There's not some famous person that comes out. There's no, there's no, we want to be like the Thessalonians. There's nobody reads the books of Thessalonians going, this is how we're going to model our church. I mean, they're just there. They're faithful to love the Lord. But in their quiet, faithful smallness, they change the world. They change the world because people hear about it. And they're going, man, these guys have a labor of love. They're proclaiming the gospel with power simply by obeying it. So that's what, they've, that's what they're doing. And let's look at why they're doing it. Who are they that they're doing these things? Well, first, let's look up here again. Remembering before our God and Father your works of faith labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know brothers loved by God. That's the first thing they are. They're brothers loved by God. This is a phrase that in Jewish culture was reserved for the likes of Moses, Solomon, Elijah, Israel itself. This phrase, loved by God, is used to describe the great people. There's one place that it's used most profoundly that relates to this, and that's in Hosea. When it calls the people of God loved by God. That's the term it uses for them. Beloved of God. This is the loved, those who are loved by God. God has laid His affection on them. God has laid His affection on them. That's part of who they are. They're loved by God. They are rejected by men, loved by God. They are ignored by society, loved by God. Their identity is wrapped up in the fact that God loves them. Their labor of love, I believe, would stem from this. So look, he says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. This is beautiful. God chose them. Now, before you get yourself all upset about the idea that God chooses, just recognize that that's exactly what it says. God chose them. We have this balanced throughout the book with they received the word. Don't get upset about this. There's no reason to. God chose them. They received the word. God chose them. You received it. God chose them. You received it. Great. You're done. Take it for what it says. Theologically, go ahead and wrestle with it. It's fun. Wrestle with it. Struggle with it. God loves a wrestling heart. For goodness sakes, he names his people wrestles with God. That's what Israel means. Seems like he likes to fight with his people. Struggle with them. He likes to wrestle. So wrestle with him. Fine. Go ahead and wrestle with him theologically. Receive the word chosen by God. 
Both are true. Now, figure out how that works in the middle. Theological term, in case you get stuck, to say I'm stuck but not sound like you're stuck is to go concursus. That's the theological term. Just remember it, concursus. It means that God is ultimately free and sovereign and man is not, is limited in his freedom. But there is a responsibility that man has and a work that God does. And somewhere in the middle, we call that concursus. That's just a theological way to say, yeah, I can't get all of it. So if anybody ever throws you off and starts picking a fight with you, just go, you know, I, I, I adhere to concursus. Nobody knows what that means. Everybody will be like, okay. And they'll move on. You can talk about something, something else <laughs> for a while. But look, God has set his effective affections on them and then he calls them here Paul refers to them as chosen by God this is God's prerogative he's chosen them he has set his affections on them likewise if you are a believer in Christ Jesus Christ Jesus has set his affections on you we're told in Ephesians that not only has he set his affections on you but he did so before you were able to respond before the foundations of the earth, he set his love on you. Before the foundations of the earth, he set his love on you. Is it any wonder then that you would remain faithful? That you would remain steadfast in hope? No, there's no wonder here because who you are out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks who you are is one beloved of God and two chosen by God. And then three, here we go, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power in the Holy Spirit. They are in the Holy Spirit. So they're loved by God. They're chosen by God and they are in the Holy Spirit. They received the word, at least in part, because of the Holy Spirit among them. Go through 1 Thessalonians and you will find multiple places where it says, you received the word. You received the word this way. You received the word in the joy of the Holy Spirit. You received the word as what it really is. You received the word we taught you as what it really is, not as the word of man, but as the word of God. Right? We're going to see that they've received the word of God, because the Holy Spirit was around and moving in them and was there and they received the word in the Holy Spirit. Did you notice what's incredibly lacking in his description of how this looks? He does not emphasize some miraculous deed. He doesn't say, remember that one person who was crippled and he moved his hand and then all of a sudden he was, he was moving his hand. He doesn't say, all of you spoke in tongues. He doesn't, he doesn't, highlights some miraculous thing. No, he highlights one thing, conviction. He highlights one thing, conviction. And then later on in the chapter, joy. Two internal actions. Two internal actions, which makes perfect sense because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If that's the fruit of the Spirit, those are all internal things that are measured by external actions, but not some miraculous display. The miracle happens in the heart. That's what I'm getting at. The miracle here happens in the heart. 
in Thessalonian believers, the Holy Spirit is received in the Holy Spirit. I mean, the, the word is received in the Holy Spirit. They have joy because of his presence in verse 6. And they are led by the Holy Spirit and are warned against disregarding him in chapter 4, verse 8. They're warned against disregarding the Holy Spirit in chapter 4, verse 8. They are, they are in the Holy Spirit. So they're loved by God. They're chosen by God. They are in the Holy Spirit. Then look at verse 6. They are imitators. They are imitators of Paul and Silas and of the Lord himself. They're imitators. They live out like Jesus. Live and love like Jesus. I've always loved the phrase, love God, love people, cultivate beauty. I've always loved that, that picture because in essence, when I, when I say that and when I think about those three things, loving God, loving people, cultivate beauty, make the world a more better place, however you want to say it. Make the world a better place, make the world more like heaven, however you want to say it. Love God, love people, cultivate beauty. When I think about that, that means to me, live like Jesus. That's what it means. Be like him. The Thessalonians had a change in their heart. They turned away from idols and they started to imitate Christ. They lived like Jesus. Verse eight, they are heralds of the gospel. They sound forth in a world that doesn't believe. They are trumpeters. They are trumpeters. Next, they turn away from idols and worship God in verse 9. And then finally, in verse 10, they await the return of Jesus Christ. They wait the return of Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonians have this labor. What, what do we know that they're doing? They are uh, working in faith. They have a labor of love. They have a steadfastness and hope. And they proclaim the gospel. And what do we know about who they are? They are loved by God. They are chosen by God. They are in the Holy Spirit. They are imitators of Jesus. They are heralds of the gospel. They turn away from idols and they await the return of their king. That's who they are. That's who we are. If you ever struggle to labor in love, to worship the Lord well, to labor in your faith, and to be steadfast in hope, remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of who you are. Because you can tell a lot about a person by how they work. Remind yourself of who you are. Remind yourself of who you are, and then you'll begin to work. You are loved by God. You are chosen by God. You are in the Holy Spirit. You are imitators of Jesus Christ. As beloved children is what Ephesians tells us. You are imitators of Christ. That's beloved Children, you are heralds of the gospel. You have turned away from idols and you are worshipers of the one true living God. And you await the return of a king who will one day save everything and restore every wrong, fix every wrong, restore every death, and will bring life eternal in his return. Father, we love you and trust you in all things. We thank you for your work among us and in us. Lord, be delighted in your people here. Be delighted in us. We love you.
teach us to love well. Amen.